0: disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I want to break free For 11 years, Tess Viglin was host at Marketplace. You've also heard her on NPR's Weekend All Things Considered. Well, she's now slumming it in Ho Chi Minh City, hawking prawns on a street corner, and stealing people's Wi-Fi. (laughs) Admit it. Admit it. You're jealous. The case for quitting your job. On Full Disclosure, stay with us. Broadcast the Full Disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompson's located in Richmond's Carytown. And by Health Warrior, makers of Chia Bar, the only bar with chia as the main ingredient. Ounce for ounce, chia has more omega-3 than salmon, more fiber than oatmeal, and more protein than tofu. It's gluten-free, kosher, non-GMO verified, 100% vegan, and delicious. Joining us from what she swears is just a standard Wi-Fi connection in Ho Chi Minh City, 12 hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time, is Tess Vigland. Uh, how are you? Robin, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Well, tell me about the title of your book, Leap. I mean, I remember you. I loved I loved your stuff, your personal finance coverage on Thank you. Marketplace several years ago. I know you left circa, what was it, middle 2012? Uh, yeah, around there. And I then noticed uh, you had this great byline in Quartz a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that caught everybody's eyes, the case for quitting your job without a backup plan, (laughs) knowing that everybody was looking ahead to New Year's resolutions. Tell us what happened to your life, madam.
1: (laughs) What do you want to do with your life? That is a tall order, my friend, a very, very tall order. So I spent 20 plus years in public radio and 11 of those at Marketplace. And it was my dream job. It was absolutely my dream job. I'm one of those people who was fortunate enough to find what they wanted to do, like right out of college. And I knew exactly where I wanted to get in my career. And I got there, got to Marketplace by the time I was 32 years old. And um, it was a most wonderful career. I am grateful beyond words. But there was, you know, there were just things happening in my life in about mid-2012 that all... Conspired to make me feel like it was time to leave, and it was quite possibly well, it was the second hardest thing I've I've ever I've ever done, um, and I just didn't know what I wanted to do next. I, I, I knew that I needed to leave this place that I had been find a new challenge, but I didn't know what that was gonna be. Because when you you know, when you get to the top of a career ladder, you kind of look around and go, Well, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, you either climb down it or you move over to a different one. But I didn't know what kind of different one I wanted to do. So I quit without having anything else lined up. That's what makes me, I guess, a little bit unique. Although I did end up uh, for my book,
0: finding a lot more people who had done that. Well, take us back to that day when the press release went out. I mean, I remember shooting you something over Twitter. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to miss your stuff. I can imagine you rather immediately got gig offers because, um, like they say in the business, <laughs> you're, you have portable alpha. I mean, you subsequently did some work for Weekend All Things Considered. You were there in SoCal. Um, Uh, obviously you, you know, business and finance. I mean, this is kind of an evergreen area of need in the industry, albeit an industry that's shrinking. So what was that first day like?
1: Well, the first day was a Saturday. So, so that was, that was super exciting and I felt really great. And I thought, Oh, I'm so brave and this is all going to work out and it's going to be fine. Um, But by Monday I was panicked because I didn't have a job. Um, I was fortunate that my husband at the time, was able to pay the mortgage but you know I started I as a personal finance reporter started worrying about money almost immediately Did you not have a severance No you only get severance if you are laid off or fired I quit Tell us, I I mean, without
0: betraying anybody, tell us how you quit because it's such a fantasy. I mean, people who hate their jobs, I'm not saying you necessarily hated your job. You know, they're under the water in the shower in the morning, like (laughs) imagining the fantasy of how they're going to tell off their boss. Right. You know, it's like Lumberg from Office Space or they're mumbling on the freeway (laughs) on the way to work. There are all these kind of fantasies of quitting in an amazing way, going out in a blaze of glory. How did you do it?
1: Uh, There was no blaze of glory at all. Um, In fact, people can read Exactly what happened uh, in the in the first chapter of the book, or actually the second chapter. Um, I I struggled with it for a really long time, and then I, I I well actually not a long time, a couple of days, and then I just decided that it was something I had to do. And it was actually it was all very very quiet. I handed in I I, ba- I basically gave my boss uh, an envelope with a piece of paper in it with my resignation letter. And, um, I expected that marketplace might come back and try to make me stay. They did not, which confirmed my decision to leave. And, um, it was all very, it was just sad because I didn't want to leave you know I, I I don't talk out of school about why I left.
0: No, no, you've been really discreet about it. It's not like you went out all, you know. No, no. glassdoor.com with these no, guys. No, and, uh, and but I the thing is everybody you you put in so much sweat equity to this place. And you know, I'm I'm speaking from a position of empathy because our industry writ large was contracting greatly. I mean, it was unthinkable that Business Week would be sold off where I was for years, and then Bloomberg owned us. And suddenly, everyone was expendable. And so, you've 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 reached in some respects kind of the apex, the pinnacle of your career. If you talk to yourself mm-hmm. in college, like, "Oh my gosh, Tess, I pulled this off." By the time I was thirty. Yeah. Because of the economy and because of the structural challenges of journalism and the disruption of technology and other other inside basebally things that are peculiar to this industry, I mean terrestrial radio and sponsorships and and um younger listeners listening to things on their smartphones as opposed to the radio everybody was suddenly if not expendable, you know no one was necessarily going to mourn uh, a a person even a star leaving
1: no nope. and I don't think anybody does anymore i i I think we are. Uh it's not, I think we are all expendable. And if 2008 didn't teach you that, then I don't know what kind of lesson would, um, you know, for me, I guess, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I, was expendable. It took them a year to, to replace me. Um, but the fact is that we are all replaceable and, you know, I, I did quit. Um, and so that was all voluntary. Nobody did it to me. Uh, but it is true. We th- there's no such thing as job certainty anymore, and you know, for a lot of people, that means that that you know that they have a risk of being fired or laid off or whatever at any point in time. And I think that's the case for for anybody. Certainly, public radio has seen layoffs. Um, but but even even at that, you know, quitting quitting was a form of that, and quitting was a form of saying, "Look, I, I need to go do something different." And I don't know what that's going to be. But I also know that you, Marketplace, are going to be just fine because you'll find somebody else. You know, it's uh, nobody is not replaceable. There are, I mean, they're replacing Garrison Keeler for Pete's sake. You know, who would have thought that they'd be able to replace him? But they are going to, or at least they're going to try. So um, nobody is irreplaceable. And that's something that you need to absorb as an employee because if you think you're safe, you're not. You never are. And you need to conduct your life in a way and make it possible for yourself to survive if that certainty goes away.
0: But Tess, it's almost like the stages of grieving and dying and the denial of this and people not wanting to have that reckoning. So especially in the wake of sure. the great economic crisis, they just held on to these jobs. But now we see we're being told that the unemployment rate is back down near natural levels. Yep, The job gains haven't been this robust since the dot-com boom, I think in late 1999. We we, we added two and a half million jobs, marking the third straight year with two million jobs gained. Um, and yet you, you you talk to people out there, I can say qualitatively, that everyone feels like there's still so much slack in the labor force. There are people out there that are just barely hanging on to their jobs. There are lots of people who are underemployed, who are, hanging on, who are doing things that are kind of almost beneath them because the shock of the economic crisis and the stock market mm-hmm. and subprime collapse were so big. So everything right now is in a kind of a stasis, but an uncomfortable of de- equilibrium, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you and I know that better than most having covered that crisis so closely. You know, I, I would point out that in addition to the uncertainty that people are feeling, the discomfort, that, that the numbers do show that actually what the government calls the quits rate is going up. So there must be some sense out there that the, that the labor market is improving because people are quitting their jobs. Now, they're not necessarily doing what I did, which is quitting without having something else lined up, but they are leaving their jobs to go do something else. And that was something that really slowed down during the economic crisis. So it is a sign of sorts that the labor market is improving because people are just more confident. Now, that said, I'm not going to pretend that it's good for everybody. Um, It is most certainly not. And, you know, income inequality has made everything even worse. So I would never urge someone to quit their job without knowing how they're going to be able to pay to keep a roof over their head or how they're going to be able to pay to put food on the table. Um, this, you know, this is a criticism that I got, um, with the book was that you're just telling people to up and quit their jobs and that everything will work out fine. And no, (laughs) I never said quit and be stupid. Um, what I do say is that sometimes you can get so wrapped up in Either A, what your career is supposed to look like and what you're supposed to be doing, or B, always telling yourself that you will never, ever have enough money to be able to do this, Mm -hmm. to quit and take some time to figure out what you want to do next. You can set goals so high that you will never meet them, and that's a psychological issue. You know, but that's a block that
0: we that we put in place to not have to deal absolutely. with the, the traumatic reckoning. I mean, a lot exactly. of people have this decision obviously made for them. They're either let go, um, yep. they are surplus, uh, their industry. You know, they're moved. They're moved maybe to contract work. Redundant. They have their benefits. They're redundant. They're they're really passive aggressive ways of doing this that have become an art form over the last yeah. several years. And then yet you talk to a lot of people, and I know I know you did for the course of your book research that look back at these um traumatic dislocations is kind of some of the best things that ever happen to them.
1: Well, it forces you to think about what your options are. And you know, the thing is, you know, we are hardwired to stick with what we know, to stick with what is comfortable. Nobody enjoys, well, most people, I would say, do not enjoy taking a risk. And they certainly do not enjoy taking a risk. When it comes with the idea that you don't have an income coming in, that maybe your family is going to be not so happy with you, um, that people are going to look at you like you're crazy. I mean, all the, none of those things are fun, but all of those things are what will happen if you quit without having something else lined up. But I did, I talked to 80 plus people from around the world who had also done what I did and almost to a person they all said that this was the kick in the butt that they needed to try something different, to figure out what they could do on their own, to figure out what made them really happy at work and what made them not so happy at work. What were the things that they got excited about? What were the things that they were dreading every Monday morning when it came around? And that's not an exercise that we generally go through unless we are forced into it.
0: Well, as Pink Floyd put it, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way.
1: It is. It is. And, I'm chock and my full of those references. That, sorry. <laughs> uh, very good. Um, my argument is that it's a lot better to do it on your own terms than if, than if it is forced on you. Because if it's forced on you, then most likely you are going to be panicking. You are not going to have a clear head to make the kind of decisions that you need to make. And so, you know, if you can prepare yourself in the right way, I think it's really good every once in a while to leave what you know, leave what's comfortable and see what else is out there for yourself. You only have one life to live. One. And if you're not taking full advantage of that and doing something that brings you joy, at least most days, what are you
0: doing Right it was like what it was like it was like what the great humanist Steve Jobs said to that graduating class at Stanford I believe it's like the one really finite thing that we all have is our time. And if you're not passionate yes. about what you do, yes. yeah, but, but then it's also annoying to hear these, you know, there are these internet executives that, that, that like quit their jobs. They're worth millions of dollars. And they're like, you know, do what you love, <laughs> do what you love. I took my, I took my family yeah. to a volcano in Indonesia and we, we had a trust fall and, and you kind of want to <laughs> strangle them because as you also see this week, there was a stat, I know you're trying to tune out a lot of personal finance stuff. I think a a plurality of Americans would not even have $500 for a car repair right now, much less a reservoir in the bank to buffer them from, you know, a job loss or quitting a job.
1: Yeah. And, you know, quite honestly, um, what I did and what a lot of these other folks did comes with a lot of privilege. And I am not going to pretend that if you have a family of four living on the median income in the United States of, what, $53,000 a year? Mm-hmm. I think it is right now. Um, I'm not going to pretend that you can do this, um, at least not without really thinking about what your safety net is going to be. You know, who who can be your backstop if, if it all goes down the drain? Um, okay. But, you know, no, no, this is not... This is not something you do lightly without forethought, and it's not something that everyone can do, and I'm not going to pretend that it is. That said, I again would say that part of all of this is how we view our lives in terms of what our lives are supposed to look like. In other words, you're supposed to have X kind of job, you're supposed to buy your own house, you're supposed to have cars in the driveway, and... What you need to think about is, well, how much of that are you doing because it's expected? Sure. How much of that are you doing because that's what your life is supposed to look like? Can you rejigger your life in such a way that maybe you don't have a mortgage anymore? Um, Maybe you sell your car and buy something even cheaper. Uh, get rid of loans, get rid of credit cards. You debt.
0: hear, you hear all these things, these, these shibboleths recently about not buying things, but buying experiences. And that seems to, have become oh a,
1: yes. Oh yes. Do you well, subscribe, I, I go, do you
0: subscribe to that? Is there, a, is there a more nuanced version of that?
1: I don't think there is. Um, I, you know, the research is out there. The research has been done. The behavioral science has been done and things do not make us happy. They give us a serotonin boost for about five minutes when you buy something um uh, but experiences that serotonin boost lasts a really really long time and it stays mm. with you over time and so you know i i will fully admit that i was the perfect american consumer i bought a house i had two cars in the driveway i had lots of nice things i gave nice dinner parties i had beautiful barbecues in the backyard i went on nice vacations and you know, the vacations I, I will never regret. All the things I bought, I tell you, Robin, when I sold my house two months ago uh, to pack up to come on this trip and basically live out of two backpacks, um, I was embarrassed at how much crap mm-hmm. I had that we ended up selling in yard sales. Um, it, I, in fact, I took a picture of all of it and I decided in a blog post that I did about all of that that I wasn't going to show it. It was that embarrassing. Oh. There was stuff in my attic that had still had price tags on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I learned a major lesson from that and I'm still learning that lesson. I am still learning that lesson. But I, you know, I wish that people would take a look around, take a look at how you're spending money. And and again, this does not apply if you are living paycheck to paycheck. This does not apply. But if you are in the, you know, the ranks of people who are spending money on stuff that maybe you really don't need and that's keeping you from, you know, pulling the ripcord on a career and trying something new. Really take a look around at what that looks like for you and see if you can make a change.
0: Full disclosure, we're joined by Tess Vigland, author of the book Leap, Leaving a Job with No Plan B to Find the Career and Life You Really Want. She was for 11 years known as Marketplace's Tess Vigland. Now, uh, as she joins us from Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, she's simply known as um, Tess Vigland, International Woman of Mystery. (laughs) How did you know? Well, I do want to get back to um, the immediate wake, let's say, the first six months after you left your job. Were you sure. getting gig offers? I mean, it's a very fluid environment. You have a ton of Twitter followers. You know, you have a lot of think-fluence on the LinkedIn, whatever that's worth, um, social <laughs> social media. <laughs> what is I mean, that worth? No, really, I do want to know. I want to get at these meaning-of-life issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what happened? I mean, were you getting stuff unsolicited even in your period of, of panic and mourning?
1: I was uh, uh, you know, not not job offers per se, um, and you know I deluded myself into thinking that I would get a lot of job offers right off the bat. That people would be, you know, clamoring at my door to hire me.
0: Don't tell me and... they were saying no. Do this for exposure. Don't they weren't trying to pull that on you, were they?
1: No. Well, I certainly have gotten that. And I always say I basically always say no, Um, except I will say that the Quartz piece that you referenced earlier, I did for free, you know, for book publicity purposes. But, um, you know, I I was getting basically backup work. Everybody in radio needs a backup host. There are not enough people mm-hmm. who have that skill set. So I I did work for America Abroad Radio. I did work for KPCC in Los Angeles. I did work for KCRW in Los Angeles for To The Point. So I was... I was. By, by the way, work, let me pause it you. And piecemeal. I got to.
0: I got to say, you did it with aplomb. It was really plug and play. Like I listened to you, and I'm not saying it was a commodity. It was the old, familiar, reliable Tess. I mean, she sounded mm-hmm. great. She didn't sound any more worse for the wear. I was so happy when I heard you on NPR. Uh, which, well, thank you. I mean, which shouldn't. I mean, and here you are joining us from Vietnam, right? Twelve hours. 12 hours ahead of me on a USB microphone on a Wi-Fi. You don't need a public radio studio. <laughs> you don't need nope. kind of a, a crate foam Not on anymore. the walls. Um, so that has got to be both uplifting and terrifying, right? You're out there. You're kind of floating Absolutely. in the wide open.
1: Yes. And um, I mean, that, that's 20 plus years of experience as well. I mean, that, I, I'm, I've been doing this for a very, very long time. So I should be plug and play. Uh, and that's actually how my my producer at NPR described me. So thank you for that. Um, but it it also it was all gig work. so and and, as we know, we are living in the gig economy, so it wasn't it wasn't unusual in any way, shape or form. But for me, it was. And i it took me a long time, you know, more than those six months you mentioned, to get used to the idea that I was not, going to work every day and getting a paycheck every couple of weeks, that is really, really terrifying. Mm. It is not something that you get used to overnight. It's something that you have to kind of get yourself through that level of discomfort and have a confidence that the work is going to come. And sometimes it didn't. And every time I started to panic about, oh, my God, I don't have I don't have anything lined up. I don't have anything lined up to write for the New York times or the guardian. I don't have anything lined up with NPR. I don't even have anything lined up at one of the local stations. And I would start to feel really bad about myself and I would start to panic about money. And then, I mean, I I have just been unbelievably fortunate something would appear, Hmm. but I also have a very long career that has allowed that to happen. Um, So it's, you know, I'm not just fortunate, I'm skilled. And those skills are in demand. Um, But it also required me to get used to, say, (laughs) filing from underneath the covers in my bedroom. Mm. Um, And it required me to get used to, again, editing my own stuff. I had a staff that did that for me for better than a decade. And now I have to do it all on my own. I have to arrange all my interviews on my own. I have to cut all my tape on my own. And, you know, that (laughs)
0: <laughs> that wasn't something I enjoyed at the beginning. True, but this cuts both ways. Like, I mean, you can get up and have a Vietnamese coffee at any time you want. Exactly. You could theoretically file this stuff from your bathrobe. Um, you're probably getting <laughs> lots of bang for your dong out there versus the dollar. (laughs) I mean, there are things you could do that you can if you're kind of on the treadmill working, you know, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. It's not even a nine to five thing anymore in the United States. I find that so many people are terrified of losing their jobs. They're terrified of the FaceTime and they just want to hang on because so much of their identity and their net worth is baked into it that, they, you know, as you know, they've handed their lives over to their jobs.
1: They have. And I'm so glad that you brought up the issue of identity, because this to me is actually far more difficult than the money issue. Uh, the money, you can, o- you can always take a gig that you don't want to, but that you have to. Um, but the issue of figuring out who you are outside of what you do, that is far more psychologically and emotionally complex. And that's what I had a really difficult time with. Because again, I was at the top of my game. I had an element of fame. People knew me by my voice in an elevator. And I had my own national radio show. That doesn't happen to everybody. Mm. And when I suddenly didn't have that, and of my own accord, (laughs) I could not figure out how to manage that. And I didn't do it very well. I had real bouts of self-doubt and of massive regret, huge regret. Like, well, as as you know, this is how I've I've framed it. What the hell did I just do? And slowly over time, certainly more than that six months we've already talked about, it has taken me, I would say the better part of the last three years to finally become comfortable with just, as you put it earlier, Not being Marketplace's Tess Viglund, but just being Tess Viglund and realizing that she had value, that she had something to bring to the table that had nothing to do with the name Marketplace behind her. Now, yes, that still brings people to my door because it is a national name. It's a well-known name. And I will be able to (laughs) live off that probably for a little while, and I fully acknowledge that. But... I have had opportunities come to me that had nothing to do, first of all, really with doing a show. And they were things that taught me where my value was, where I didn't even know it. So can I explain that just for for a moment? Of course. There are things that, particularly if you have been doing something for a very long time, you forget that they're skills. They're the things that you say, oh, I could do that in my sleep at work. Oh, I can, that's, I can just do that by the back of my hand. You forget that they are skills because you have done them for so long and you do them so well that they become part of your DNA. Hmm. For me, it turned out, that was public speaking. I've been talking in public for 20 years. And not just behind a microphone, but I would go and I would do, you know, speeches at public radio member stations. For me, getting on a stage, handling a microphone, maybe interviewing someone on stage is so easy. It is, again, I could do it in my sleep. So I didn't think about it as a skill until I was asked to act as an MC for Chicago Ideas Week. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute. Most people do not want to get on a stage mm. with a microphone and interview people. This is something where I bring value that 98% of the population cannot do this. And suddenly it's valuable. And this ended up being how I made a good chunk of my money over the last three years is by emceeing corporate
0: events. How did you get your word out that you were available as an MC? Just by hanging a shingle on the webpage or... You know, uh, exuding think thinkfluence on your LinkedIn profile. How is that even done? Because we're all under the impression that this—again, we're speaking as as insiders—that this stuff is there's there's a there's a ocean of this kind of uh, know-how and content out there.
1: Right, right. Um, well, part of it was people did come to me again because I was a well-known name, and people heard that I had left Marketplace and that I was looking for other opportunity. Um, but I also got an agent. Mm. And I got an agent because, um, Reben, I am terrible with negotiation. I am terrible with money. I, I'm, I'm like so many other people out there. I, I, I do not know how to set my own value. Mm. I should, after the number of years that uh, that I was in business and economic and personal finance reporting, but I didn't. And I'm plus, gonna, I also, I'm,
0: I'm going to ask you, with all due respect, though, is do, yeah. how much of this is is do you do you feel comes from gender? Or something that you grew up maybe thinking that maybe I have to play second fiddle to someone else or I'm...
1: Oh, I, I think that is a huge part of it. I think that's 60 if not 70% of it. And there are studies that show, and I, and I used to interview women who had written books on this, that women are terrible negotiators. Because we feel like we should apologize for asking yeah, for something.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of apologizing in yes, the industry. Yes,
1: and that's something that I still struggle with. I, you know, I still need to get over that. Um, but you know, my solution at that point was (laughs) to get someone who would do it for me and tell me what my value was, because I had also been working in the nonprofit world for 20 years. So I didn't know what my value was in corporate America. And so she set a rate for me, uh, that I thought was hilarious and it was met. And so now I have a baseline. Now I have knowledge of what my skills should bring me and what I should earn in the open market. Now, that's not to say that I always get that or that I always demand it. You know, different things demand different price points. But um, what what it has done for me, this realizing that I had skills that not a lot of other people have, it gave me confidence, Robin. Hmm. It gave me this idea that, uh, that I could go out there and be out on my own, that I could do stuff without having the backing of an entity. And that, and by the way, that, I want you i want you to repeat huge. that.
0: I want you to repeat that again, that you could.
1: I could go out and do things on my own without having the backing of a corporate entity.
0: Now, everybody out there listening to this, uh, that is a, such a huge epiphany. When I've had mentors in my life, Various, You know, the the person, Justin Fox, who brought me into print, he was an an editor at Fortune magazine. Oh, Justin's fabulous. Love him. Was at the top of his game. And when I went to him in 1999 and said, I want to become a business journalist, I don't like being in the brokerage industry, I just looked up to this guy. But then he also felt disruption and dislocation in his life. But he told me that he found his voice and he found his courage when he wrote his book and when he found that mm-hmm. his book was indispensable to a lot of people. And I remember we were sitting there in an Irish pub by uh, Grand Central Station and he said it was that time in my life when I realized I did not need a huge masthead behind me, I didn't need a national brand behind me, that yep. I could do this without a safety net. I could, I could trapeze without having that beneath me. Um, and that, by the way, can only be done if you go out there and do it. You can, you can get up on the stage right. and give a million TED Talks till you turn blue in the face. And in fact, you gave a great speech in 2013 that then seeded your book because there happened to be, what, a, a random house editor in the audience? Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, a, a friend of mine a couple of months after I left marketplace asked me if I would speak at a at an event called the World Domination Summit. Um which sounds a little hinky, but it's actually <laughs> this <Evil>. wonderful <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it's this wonderful group uh gathering of people in Portland, Oregon every year. Entrepreneurs, creative types, thinkers who get together to talk about, you know, the big stuff in life. And I had never heard of it. And so initially I told my friend, um, who, J.D. Roth, actually, you may know him, uh-huh. um, of Get Rich Slowly. So he asked me if I would speak at this event. And I was like, I've never heard of this event. What is it? Please, kiss, you know, just come and talk about what it's been like for you to quit your job without having anything else lined up. And I said to him, no, J.D., I will not do that. That does not sound like my idea of fun. That sounds absolutely horrifying. I will not tell people that I'm having a tough time. Who does that? <laughs> Who gets up on stage in front of 3,000 people and says, um, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I think I might have made a huge mistake.
0: Uh, Tony well, Robbins or people like that do.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, I did end up getting up on stage in July of that year and doing exactly that, talking about how, you know, we all hear that, oh, follow your passion and the riches will come. Mm-hmm. And it, that, in fact, that's BS. That that is not how it happens. It requires an incredible amount of work on yourself. It requires an incredible amount of just plain hard practical work. And that, uh, that I still wasn't sure that I had done the right thing. And I talked for 40 minutes about how this had mm. been a real struggle for me, personally, professionally, emotionally, psychologically. I basically puked out my guts onto a silver platter in front of 3000 people I'd never met. And unbeknownst to me, an executive editor from Random House
0: was in the audience, and 11 days later, I had a book deal. How did that happen? Did they, did they interface with your agent? Who, who solicited this? Oh. I mean, you were approached like, have you ever thought about putting this into 75,000 words, dear? <laughs> How did it
1: work? It was, it was almost that simple. I got an email from him through my website that night.
0: Now I'm, I also I, right now I'm finishing a book right now I'm on my seventy five thousand worth by the way, right this very minute Congratulations. and I'm thinking I'm toggling between two more abundant industries like public radio is atrophying and the book industry is so what I mean, was there was there something there were, were there were there kind of riper pastures in book publishing to the extent that you were approached you were solicited and it wasn't kind of no Tess, We want you to self publish and go direct to Kinkos.
1: Uh, no, again, I was incredibly fortunate and they also knew that I came with a built in audience.
0: Mm.
1: Um, but no, I, I got, I got an extraordinary book deal, especially for a first book. I, I, I I look back and I still can't even believe it happened. And uh, almost the more interesting part though, at least for me, is that I had been approached to do books several times while I was at Marketplace. Everybody and their dog wanted me to do a personal finance book. Which you had no passion for doing. I was not interested at all. Yeah, I likewise. You no, know, not, not at all. So when this came along and, and this executive editor said, you know, I want you to write about what you talked about today because I think a lot of people need to hear that. There were two things that went through my head. One is I don't want to write a book. I'm too lazy. I've never wanted to write a book. It's not been, you know, something that was on my bucket mm-hmm. list. Which is surprising because a lot of journalists uh, have always wanted to write a book. Uh, that, that was not me. I loved radio. Second, I thought to myself, well, do I really want to talk about more of this stuff? Because it's very personal. Of course, right. You know, and, and you give a lot of yourself when you write a book like this. And what happened was over the, over the eight months preceding since I had left my job, I had taken some risks in things that I had never done before. Some of it worked out, some of it didn't. And what I had learned to do was to really know when to follow my gut and say yes to something. And that's something that a lot of people don't know how to do. And it's something that I've gotten better and better and better at. But you know, I could easily have, have said no to this book, as I had said to so many books before. <laughs> but this one, you know, I there was something about it. Uh, I I just decided that it was something that I needed to say yes to and that I needed to explore and that I needed to think about. I had no idea it was going to happen so quickly. I mean, to go from speech to book deal in 11 days is nuts, bonkers. But I just believed that it was all happening for a reason. And Robin, I am not that person who believes that the universe gives gives a hoot about me. I'm not that person who says, when the universe speaks to you, you must listen. I just—I don't go out. for I give—I give a, I give a hoot about stuff.
0: you. You were like in an opium den six hours ago, and I called you, and you said you'd come on my show. <laughs> I care you about you, Tess. To
1: tell people,
0: I'm sixty thousand miles away, and I reached out.
1: <laughs> um, anyway, it—you it, know—it—it just—I I guess what all I'm saying is that. Sometimes you have to say yes, even when you can't imagine how it's going to work out. Hmm. And that's what I did with the book. Um, So, you know, I was very fortunate to get an advance that I did. And that allowed, you know, that that was basically my job for a year was to write the book. Hmm. Um, But, you know, I've, I've learned how to say yes and no. And that's not something I was very good at. And, you know, those are the kinds of gifts that you get when you take a risk. You learn different skills. You learn, you learn a lot about yourself. And, you know, again, I I am not the Tony Robbins person. I am, I am not that person who, you know, again, believes that like there's this plan for me. Um, But at the same time, over the last three years, I've learned that sometimes things come along and you have to pay attention to the fact that they've come along and you have to go with that and you have to go with your gut.
0: Hmm. I've learned to go with my gut. Basically, that's that's why I'm in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure: We're talking to Tess Viglin, mellifluous Rebel without a Clue, author of the book Leap, leaving a job with no Plan B to find the career in life you really want. Don't you like how I just deadpan these BS job um, titles for you?
1: Yeah. Well, you just told me I didn't have a clue. Hello. That's fun well, because I, because, I poke
0: right. because I love. That's what you're telling everybody. I mean, what's beautiful about this? If I can if I can wax cheesy. Um, For a few minutes is that you are at the same time exposing your vulnerabilities. It's not like you're going up on a stage at, you know, the Chicago World Domination Conference, whatever it's called and and, and pounding your chest and saying, you know, I am Tess, Hear me roar. Watch what I did. Um, I am a paragon of think fluence. You're telling us that this is a work in process that's fraught with insecurity that you're you're kind of you're you're patching us in as you go along, and I think that you know coming on our show tonight is is one example. I do want to get at some of the peculiarities of radio because we're okay. kindred spirits in this request. Um, I, I just to just to fill you in: um, six years ago, my magazine was sold. Uh, we had a ton of layoffs at the same time. My son arrived uh, prematurely. And it just repositioned everything for me. I I stepped back to say, Gosh, if I was gonna get on a train every morning and be away from my weak son, and be away mm-hmm. from my wife who needs me. I, I definitely have to be a lot more passionate about what I'm doing than than what I'm doing now, which largely entails, yes. you know, when you get, when when a when a magazine masthead is kind of cut by a third, and everybody has to double their their work throughput, that you're just working to hang on for dear life. And a lot of that was embedded in my guilt, like, what kind of a father would I be if I couldn't provide yes. for my premature son? Um yes. And so any, you know, you don't really know me, people out there. I know this is a self-indulgent moment. Uh, My son's about to turn six. If you don't know that the the last part, you know, the last six years of my life in the throes of this economic calamity have been kind of rediscovering, uh, you know, my value. I think I've been a father first and foremost. And at the same time, all of content's being thrown up in the air. And I, I zeroed in on what my passion was, and it was writ large radio. I loved it when... NPR would Mm -hmm. call me in during the financial crisis. Occasionally, the folks at Marketplace would throw me a bone, but we'll leave it at that. Um, And I liked it, and I (laughs) wanted to pursue it. So in in, in the naivete of that moment, I think when I decided I was ready to leave, I was there— trying to kiss the ring of my local public broadcasting affiliate, which I thought that everything boiled down to what my local public broadcasting affiliate said. And meanwhile, here we are. I'm in a private studio in Richmond, Virginia. You're 12 hours ahead of me on a Wi-Fi and USB microphone in Ho Chi Minh City. And we're providing something that's, by the way, it's overwhelmingly going to be listened to on smartphone, whether you want to come to it on iTunes or NPR One or this or that. And so... Do you see what I'm saying? It's terrifying in that nobody's going to take me on and give me a nice salary and benefits, but it's also exhilarating in that it's completely open-ended now, Tess. You yes. can join any yes. show. You can be patched in on anything while you're eating pho in your bathrobe in Ho Chi Minh City on a Wi-Fi connection. Oh, how did you know? No, I'm just imagining <laughs> that.
1: No, it's true. I, that You know, this is an extraordinary time to be... Thinking about going independent, um, or in your case, in my case, doing it, because technology has made it so much more possible for us to work for ourselves. Now there are downsides to that, certainly, um, not the least of which being there is no, uh, there's no comfort level. Um, you are you are you are constantly fighting for you know
0: whatever whatever work you can get. And there's just so much content out there that it diminishes there, any yes. content maker's value, right? Yes, the metaphor yes. I've always heard is it's like sipping from a fire hydrant. If you're going to try to charge <laughs> for your content, somebody else is going to provide it for free. They'll just go yes. right for Forbes.com and, and, and get paid an exposure, you know? <laughs> or the HuffPo. Or the HuffPo, um, right. Yeah, no. Darling, it, you know, do that, it for the really exposure. We get, we get 50 <laughs> trillion uniques a month. Tess Vigelandt. <laughs> Please do it. It will be worth oh, your while. Ariana. What royalty Ariana, do I you collect? Do anything
1: for you. 50 cents
0: a book? <laughs> Come to the Huffington Post.
1: Anyway, <laughs> you go do ahead. her
0: very well. Very well.
1: Um, Bill Maher's going to have you on his show.
0: It almost sounds like a <laughs> <Nouriel> <laughs> Rubini. Roubini. Rubini said the green <laughs> shoot is going to be a fungus. But it's not a fungus. The green shoot is a fungus. <laughs> the economic recovery is a fungus. It's not a green shoot. Ariana! <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. You could see uh, a lot of my I, I pent I have no thoughts. idea
1: what we were talking about.
0: <laughs> I don't know either, but that's the beauty of this. We'd get cut off if we were we were at Marketplace or something right now. We'd get taken out by security and thrown out onto the 405. Yeah, pretty
1: much. Pretty much. Yes, that's exactly what would happen. No, I think the point that I was making is that we do live in an era that makes it possible to to work for yourself in in a lot of different um, in a lot of different industries. That said, you do give up uh, you know, you give up the guaranteed health insurance. You give up the 401k contributions. And it means that you have to rely on on other outlets for that. You know, maybe you have to go on Obamacare. And that, quite frankly, that is that is another factor that has allowed more people to quit their jobs and go and try and do something new. Because mm-hmm. they do now have the potential, at least, for health care um, outside of an employer. Um, so, so. Technology has made a lot of this possible—the freelancing, the gig economy, you know, all that sort of thing. But there are downsides, and you have to be ready to deal with them if you're going to do something like this.
0: Hmm. Well, talk about um, getting paid for your content. Uh, I really want to—I really kind of want to get to that. We like to take pride of ownership. We like to think that we're not loss leaders, and this goes back to the you know first couple of minutes of our conversation—is that the sad, cynical realization that everybody's expendable. Uh, but content especially, it, it's just so vexingly hard to get paid for your craft now. There's just so much of it out there Yeah that it's one thing if you're out there as a commodities trader or someone with proven alpha and you're a profit center, but – Journalists have always been cost centers their entire life. So it's really hard to kind of turn around. You know, you're selling your prestige when you MC an event. Your your right. your events are not profit centers for everyone. It's not like, you know, you can hang a shingle and say, you know, uh, for, uh, for the Tess Viglin podcast, pay me 10 bucks a pop, right? Do um, you know what I'm getting well, at? There's just so much of this stuff out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would actually backtrack on that and say... Uh, you know, for some people, yes, you, you can, you can say that you, you know, I, I've seen a business model where people do podcasts and ask people to pay for it in order to be able to download it. That has been suggested to me that I do that. Uh, I haven't started that yet. You know, what's been I...
0: suggested to me, open up a Persian restaurant on the side to fund your podcast. Oh,
1: good grief. <laughs> <laughs> do you cook? <laughs>
0: no, but I I guess I have to learn. Well, that's I a mean, problem. <laughs> <laughs> Here you are, by the way. I always thought you were like the pride of Portland. If if everything went to hell, Portland would kind of take you in and say, you know what, we're gonna you know, rally behind radio Tess and we're sufficiently funky <laughs> enough to kind of, you know, institute her as our public radio mascot.
1: I uh, I'd like to think that they would do that. I don't know. I've never asked. Um, Hint, hint,
0: wink, wink. (laughs) We'll
1: We'll see when I get back from my travels if I need need to do that. That's where I started my career. So um, I I would love to go back there at some point. And I have a lot of friends and family there. Can you you tell uh, us,
0: you know, I know it's kind of like a cliche thing. You can imagine Diane Lane in the movie going to Ho Chi Minh, going to Vietnam and learning, you know, gosh, I still had had price tags on a lot of things I was finding in my (laughs) attic. (laughs) I didn't even have. <laughs> who would play? Who would play you in the movie? Like, I didn't even have it. I was too ashamed to put them on eBay. But actually, when you went there, tell me about what it was like. I mean, at some point, you got off at the airport, right? And you said you had your life's contents in two knapsacks, right? Very Aside, much. right? So what? What was? What was that like? I really want to, you know, in the ten minutes or so that we have left, kind of get get to this chapter of your life. <laughs>
1: Okay. Well, do you want to know who I want to play me in the movie? Yes, please. Mariska Hargate. Okay. Yeah.
0: From Law and Order. From Law and Order, I, right? Her I father was just... a bodybuilder, I think. Right? Yeah. And, and, yeah, Jane's yeah, Man- and Jane Mansfield was, was her mother. Eight, I don't. I don't eight, know.
1: Eight yeah. Yeah. No. T- absolutely. I just good think genes. Good genes. Good genes. Yes. I just think she's badass, and she just at least her character doesn't doesn't take anything from anybody. So. Okay.
0: Uh, so she plays That's you in people. the movie. What was it like when you when you flew in? What did you, what did you do? You took a You took a full freight flight? Did you fly, you know, cattle class? Um, Did you take several different (laughs) boats getting there? I mean, did you? No, really. Was it a vision quest? How did you do this?
1: Um, I got on the plane at LAX. I had to do a layover uh, in San Francisco. Then I flew across the ocean uh, to Hong Kong and then Saigon. It took about 24 hours, and I moved here. That was it.
0: What did you do? Get a flat?
1: I do. I, I I have an apartment that I just recently got because I spent the first three weeks or so actually doing a lot of touring with a couple of girlfriends who came over from L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, yeah, I have an apartment right downtown Ho Chi Minh City in what's called District One. And I'm going to be here until my visa expires
0: in mid-March. And after that, I don't know where I'm going yet. Well, how's the cost of living? Tell us about the arbitrage, right? You sold your car?
1: Uh did not sell my car. My dad insisted that I not do that because he said, what if you're back in a month? <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I'm going on this long journey that I say I'm not going to be home for a long time and you think I'm going to be back in a month. Um, I wasn't back in a month, but he convinced me not to sell my car. So it is sitting in a friend's driveway in Los Angeles. Uh, but I did sell my house. Mm-hmm. And um, the real estate market in Los Angeles is unbelievably hot right now. So I was very fortunate that that is making it possible for me to travel, uh, quite frankly. And I know as a personal finance journalist that I should put that in my retirement fund. But right now, Robin, I'm not living for retirement. I am living for an adventure. I'm 46 years old and I've wanted to travel my entire life. And this is just the time that I've chosen to do it. And I don't know where I'm going. I picked Vietnam because it was really far away and uh, it was going to make me very uncomfortable because there's no way I'm going to be able to learn the language in the time that I'm here. And I also hate the heat. And so I went to the hottest place I could possibly think
0: of. You're a a masochist Um, to boot. This is amazing. I'm a
1: total masochist. Yeah. Um, no, I really just, you know, I've lived this life of, of, of comfort, and privilege, and I just wanted to force myself out of that and, and figure out how to get through stuff. And
0: Where did you so get, get that? Gonna... I want to know because that's a theme in the book and in some of the columns that yeah. you've penned. Where did you get yeah. that kind of true north or that faith in discomfort?
1: I certainly didn't have it three years ago. The, the, the act of quitting my job, of doing something that I was not supposed to do, just set something off in me. And I don't, it's so hard to explain and put into words, but the fact that it, that it worked out okay, that I did okay on my own was just huge for me. And as I said earlier, it also taught me to listen to my gut and my gut has been telling me that I needed to go, that I just needed to push myself somewhere new, somewhere different, and I now listen to that. I listen to that voice when it talks to me, hmm. um and now people are going to think I'm listening to voices, but um i I just
0: was there any point when a wise uh Vietnamese man descended from the rice paddies and said, Tess, this is your destiny. Nothing like that. locked mm, eyes not with yet. you."
1: Not yet. I'm waiting Darn. for
0: that. I'd like to write that yeah. into the screenplay. But no, no, seriously, <laughs> seriously, Rob, I'm sure a ton of people have emailed you out there to the extent that you, you've you kind of laid some of your insecurities bare and you've oh, made yeah. yourself vulnerable and people wanted to write you and said, you know what, my marriage fell apart or I was in a dead-end job. Um, I think that's what's so important about something like this is, is to to sense a kind of a universality out there that if 70% of – of, of people pulled, say they're disengaged in their jobs, you have to imagine a good chunk of them are outright hostile. They're in abusive yes. relationships with, with their jobs. Yes. That there's a lot of neurosis and a lot of kind of subterranean ox beneath that. So give us an idea of some of the some of the correspondence you've received.
1: Oh, man. Well, I've received both good and bad. And, you know, I, <laughs> I finally stopped looking at the reviews on Amazon of my book. Um, but while I was looking at them, you know, it was people who actually didn't who actually didn't want all of the kind of the the, the ugly bits, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the stuff that is really personal, that is self-doubt, that is I don't know what I'm doing and I think I might be crazy and uh, I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, but that has been overwhelmed by people who say thank you so much for actually speaking truth to this. Because there's so much cheerleading out there, Robin. There's so much, and I'm sorry, like Anthony Robbins, and people like that who no, actually, just even tell on, you on that-
0: LinkedIn, On LinkedIn, there's a lot of BS. And frankly, if you talk to executives, well, yes. they say, I never wrote that. I pay people, I actually pay underemployed journalists to ghostwrite this stuff for me so I can I can now be a content creator on LinkedIn. Yes. I mean-
1: <laughs> Yes, well, and, and and there you go. And so much of it is follow these 10 steps and you'll have a happy life. And, you know, that, that was another thing I think some people expected for my book was that I was going to give them all the answers. I was going to give them a blueprint for how to do this and how to conduct your life. And we live in a society that is self-help, uh, uh, just obsessed. And we are obsessed with lists of, you know, all the executives who get up early in the morning and how they became successful. Yeah, the life, the
0: life hacks of doing this yes, and how to drink yes. coffee.
1: And that but is that's not going kind to of
0: help a, you. That's almost like a reductionism of, of maybe it's the angst of yes. the time and, and journalism too, which is being, you know, buzzfeeded to death in terms of listicles exactly. and, and everything. Exactly. And my
1: response to that is you have to do the goddamn hard work on yourself. You have to sit in the stew of uncertainty and not knowing what you're doing and feeling like a failure. You have to sit in that and get through it yourself without 10 steps to doing it. And a lot of people don't want to do that hard work. I didn't know that that's what I was going to have to do. Um, I had no idea it was going to last this long. But it is, it has taught me a lot about myself and I've had to do that hard work. And nobody can do that for you. Nobody can give you a list of how your life is gonna get better if you quit your job. There it, it just doesn't life doesn't work that way. It doesn't work on lists. Your your life, Robin, is completely different than mine. So how can I presume to tell you how to conduct it and how it's how it's gonna get better?
0: And yet I'm reaching um, out to you because a lot of your candor touched me. And I tried to square yeah. it I squared it back with the voice I remember. It was almost a shadow persona thing, like you know test the omnipresent marketplace tests right uh, impermeable like great that voice she just uh, got it under control like events ooh. like like ted speaker caliber test but then to see this other side of you just made me kind of want to hug you right and i know oh, you're 12 well, hours ahead of me and and, and in time <laughs> in time we will i do want to i do want to uh, we have a few minutes left i kind of want to get it you know I, I, another one of these these clichés where you want to punch people as they say I have no regrets is is that the case with oh, you
1: oh please Oh, uh, no.
0: <laughs> what would you no, have, What would you have done differently going back five, ten, fifteen years, even to college?
1: Oh wow. Um, jeez, I I would like myself more. First of all, yeah, I would try to be satisfied with who I was and the intellect that I had and the body that I had and you know the. I would have tried to have a little more inner peace. Um, mm. I think that's hard for. Most people. Um, If I was going back to the person in my, say, late 20s, I would say, stop worrying about the fact that you're not married yet and that you don't have children and everybody else thinks that there's something wrong with you. I would go back to the woman in my 30s and say, why are you buying a house? Are you buying it because you're supposed to? Because that's part of the American dream? Or are you buying it because you really understand what it is and what it's going to entail? Because now that I've sold it, I'm not sure I ever want to own a home again. I had a wonderful home, a beautiful home, but the upkeep and the expense are ridiculous. And to the woman from three years ago who didn't know at this point three years ago what she was doing and what was going to happen and totally regretted leaving what she knew and what she was really good at, I wish I could go back there and tell her that it was all going to work out. Um, and, well, actually, no, I wouldn't tell her that because it hasn't all worked out. It's been really hard. It's been, it's been incredibly difficult. And, um, so I wouldn't tell her that it was all going to work out, but I would tell her that the adventure was beginning and that, that she should just embrace that adventure sooner than she did. Uh, now I embrace it Mm. and I'm doing what I feel is right right now. And if I decide that traveling the world uh, is not working out in two months, I'm going to go home. And part of me was worried that that was going to happen and that it was going to look like a failure because so a lot of people are watching what I'm doing and they want to know how it
0: works out. And, 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 they're, and they're rooting for you. And actually, if I could talk to me, uh, you know, several years ago, I would say, I I should have decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow but you know what yeah Uh, (laughs) we were talking to Tess Vigland author of did you just
1: make a beaches reference
0: no no that was uh, Whitney no uh, greatest love of all is happening to me I think it was Whitney Houston. God bless her rest in peace (laughs) we were talking to Tess Vigland the book's title is Leap Leaving a Job with No Plan B buy it on Amazon buy it at the bookstore if you could find one Um, I highly recommend it Thank you so much, Tess. Robin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are on NPR1, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, WRIR on Wednesdays and Sundays. And now, wait for it. A-Cast. And um, I'm assuming we now have a Vietnam bureau chief, at least for as long as Tess remains there. Can I take that for granted?
1: You can totally take that for granted. And after that, it'll probably be Cambodia. So I'll, I'll be your roving bureau chief. Badass. I'm
0: Robin Farzad, back with you <laughs> next week. I've got to break through.